This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We're here to talk about Alexis Smith, her snake path, and the extraordinary new mural, which is actually created in 1987, uh, that will be installed at the end of this year, 2020, at UCSD's new uh, neighborhood along Torrey Pines Road. And we have with us uh, Anthony Graham, uh, who is Associate Curator with the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. He's currently organizing an exhibition that will present almost five decades of work by Alexis Smith. His recent exhibitions at the museum include the artist Nancy Lupo and a show called Bound to the Earth, Art, Materiality, and the Natural World, drawn from the museum's collection. And we have, of course, Mary Beebe, the illustrious director of the Stewart Collection, and she knew Alexis Smith even before that when she was director of the Portland Center for the Visual Arts, when you first met Alexis. Is that right, Mary? That's right. We did a show with her and Chris Burden and Michael Asher and a few others um, in the 70s at the space I was running, the Portland Center for Visual Arts in Portland, Oregon. And so we became friends at that time. And of course, I was thinking about her for the Stewart Collection. I went to see this, the Brooklyn mural, and I thought, oh, wow, this is incredible. And I had originally asked her if she could do something for the whole Warren Mall. And she was talking about maybe doing it with some other people, but it just, it got sort of, it was too big. And we didn't have that much money. And uh, so so she suddenly had this idea um, about putting, making the snake path real. What this mural is, is a image of a highway coming down through the California mountains, through the orange groves and becoming a snake, the serpent of knowledge from the Garden of Eden. And then across the front of it are eight uh, collages that are pictures of, or some of them are real, actual things that you might find on the side of the road, sort of discarded or thrown out the window by a kid or whatever. And across that, is a quotation from Jack Kerouac's On the Road. I'll just turn to uh, Anthony and just ask you, Anthony, uh, how you came to sort of know, through her work, know Alexis Smith. And perhaps you could talk a little bit about the nature of collage and how that has influenced what she has done and uh, how her work originated. Yeah. I, I first learned about Alexis Smith's work when I joined the museum in 2015. Um, an early project that I did uh, was a, a collection show, you know, putting putting works from our holdings on view. Um, and I was sort of organizing this, this small show around just California and L.A. and the art scene at the time, at, in the 60s and 70s. And so... <clears throat> um, Alexis' work was included in that show, and um, that was kind of my introduction to her. And when researching the the piece that we that I was including is called "The American Way." It's this 1980 collage. Um, 
I realized that she had not had a significant uh, museum exhibition since the early 1990s. And that shocked me. So it was this sort of, um, this, this sort of ongoing question of like, well, who is Alexis Smith? And, and she's hard to pin down. Um, and it was especially tough because there, there hasn't been a ton written about her. Um, and so that was my, you know, sort of interest in her work initially in, in connection to the fact that I was really interested in the way that she has been so committed to collage for so long um, as this really specific practice that, you know, she began in the 1970s. But, you know, in interviews, she's also said that, you know, collage is something that she did since childhood. You know, this kind of like scrapbooky um, hobby of cutting up magazines and pasting them together. Um, but that it was in college when she was at UC Irvine um, that a friend encouraged her to take an art class. And she began to understand how this thing she felt was intuitive could be, you know, artistic. And that it was about simply about changing its context, that by calling it art and calling herself an artist, this thing that felt natural became um, so specific And so um, throughout the 1970s, she continued these um, really almost minimalist and somewhat austere collages um, where, you know, small objects were placed onto sheets of paper that had text typewritten onto the bottom of them. And that, um, you know, those like in some ways they sort of look like a scrapbook that's been, uh, you know, unbound and put on the wall or they look like sheets of a, a movie script. And and as as she developed her work, they became increasingly complex um, in terms of their formal components, the way that she used language changed over time. Um, at times, you know, she has foregone language altogether, um, but it also sort of created this um, this process that I think lent itself eventually to her installations and public work, which was, um, you know, the power of bringing objects together and understanding that they, the objects themselves could have sort of conversations and reveal meanings about our lives and our culture. We'll talk about the specifics of the, of the, uh, the mural itself in a moment and the collages that are included there. Uh, but let's just talk about the snake since it sort of happened, even though it happened after the mural. Uh, we didn't really experience the mural. We experienced the snake and it changed uh, when it became a snake and when it became this enormous uh, installation at UCSD. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what what it's about for Alexis and then also about what it was about sort of for the evolution of the Stewart collection, because it was a huge leap forward in a way for us at the Stewart Collection? Well, it was our most ambitious project so far at the time. And uh, for me, the snake, and she had just looked up at this uh, hill, which actually was was about to be renovated and become from a parking lot to a hill going up the side um, to the library. And she said maybe we could make a real snake, I mean, real being, you know, visual snake, uh, working its way up to the library. And then she added a Garden of Eden, so this is her sort of collage part coming in, and in the 
Garden of Eden, there's a bench with a quote from Thomas Gray, and she added a book, uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, um, or, you know, a constructed book, a marble book, a huge book, um, going up the snake path. So you encounter these references to the classic myth of Adam and Eve or to the search for paradise, which is what On the Road is about. You know, his name is Paradise. But in the mural, she uses these beautiful, classic California orange crate images, you know, of oranges with their blossoms. And in the snake path, she's got a couple of images of Adam and Eve. In in the bench, there, there's images of Adam and of Eve. And then the book... Um, does not actually have images on it, but it has a quote. And so the Adam and Eve part and the Garden of Eden part, um, that wasn't part of the mural, right? Except it sort of was because it was called Same Old Paradise. Right, right. But, you know, the Adam and Eve myth about the snake bringing knowledge or Mm -hmm. awareness uh, to mankind and therefore they they became human and were cast out of Eden, just as students have to be cast out of the university, which for some is paradise. I know it's not paradise for every school but or every person, but um, to have this sort of the acquisition of knowledge is kind of what the snake is about. And I think that is so appropriate, of course, for a university. Um, and you can, it, and and it was important that it have a sense of movement. So you and Alex and I think um, the landscape people um, had the idea of making it crowned, so that you minute you walk on it, you really know that you're on a different kind of path. This is not a regular path, and it's banked, not the way you would anticipate is sort of banked so that you, you know, you have to not, not exactly struggle, but you, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, not always easy. (laughs) And it's important to remember that people who are just encountering it out of the blue and don't know about it in advance and haven't seen an aerial photo or anything like that, don't necessarily know it's a snake, right? They are just experiencing this different kind of pathway. And, those were the two big uh, uh, difficulties in sort of designing it. And Andrew, Andrew Spurlock was the landscape architect, and he was really key in the whole development of it. Um, but crowning the path and making it so that it's not banked into the slope the way a normal pathway or road would be, but crowning it and letting it just lie on the slope means that there's always a place that's sort of flatter that you can walk but it makes you extra conscious of the fact that it's curved, like the back of a snake. And then the head, of course, is with a tongue, a huge tongue going out, is the top terrace of the, the library. But it's part of one of the entrances. And then the book, Paradise Lost, that Milton's Paradise Lost sort of got included, and that isn't actually part of the mural that we're about to install. Um, and the book itself, the design for the book, and, and this goes back to the way Alexis works, I think, in this kind of contingent way, the, the, the book itself was given to her by Italo Skanga, right? A professor, an art professor at UCSD, as a wedding present, I think. So, Anthony, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, how 
collage might lend itself to this, you know, quantum leap into the landscape and into the gigantic in terms of how Alexis was uh, able to, to do that and how it meshes with her, with her much more small-scale uh, kind of works. Well, Alexis always talked about her work with collage as being, you know, one part of a much more expansive process. And um, in the 1970s, you know, she did a number of performances and a few installations. And then in 1980, she began, you know, she began developing this even further and she would mount her collages on the walls in gallery exhibitions, but then, you know, paint the walls and sometimes affix objects to the walls or place sculptures in the room. And, you know, this, this all built towards a more environmental understanding of her collages. And so as she continued to kind of, you know, to, to grow this um, practice, I think that it was always in terms of, of trying to reach the viewer where they were. Um, and I think this is also, you know, this is clear in her her choice of references that she wanted things to seem kind of relatable or that things that people might recognize. You know, she was interested in breaking down high culture and low culture. And so with her public projects, this was, you know, an, another opportunity to, to, uh, engage an audience that might not be expecting to see an artwork. And so she wanted to find a way to, for it to, to, to maintain that relatability. So I think it's great the way you talk about the snake path as, you know, you don't necessarily know that it's a snake, but it's really clear that you're on some different kind of path that is not just a walkway. Um, it's really obvious immediately that it's, it's a very sort of specific and uncertain ground that, that draws you in. And yeah. So I think in terms of how collage lends itself um, to, to getting larger, I don't know if it's collage itself, but it's, you know, really her interest in, um, in reaching a broad audience with, you know, these ideas of culture. Yeah, she talks about uh, the sort of great American story, not just the California story. I think I heard you mention that before. Um, and, uh, and how uh, she's also always been focused on uh, these sort of grand uh, American characters, right? Um, like Kerouac, these characters that sort of rush through space and, and symbolize the whole culture. Cultural icons like Marilyn Monroe, the museum owns um, men don't pay, make passes at girls that wear glasses. And she always, she and often incorporates literature, which um, I think is one of the key things um, about her work, is that she plays off literature, and she's got her favorite authors like Kerouac and uh, Jack London and Raymond Chandler and those uh, guys of the late 50 or whatever, but a certain period of America when there were stars and there were, maybe they still are, I don't know. And I remember in the 90s when we were building this and we were in constant communication with Alexis, uh, that was in the day of answering machines and uh, she always had a message and it was always a little bit of Raymond Chandler from Alexis Smith, uh, a quotation, and she'd change it every every week or every month. Yeah, I think there there are... Literature is so important to her work 
you know, throughout, um, whether it's Raymond Chandler and the sort of L.A. noir detective fiction. Um, And I think that I think Chandler specifically holds such a special place in Alexis's work because of the way that his books reflected on Los Angeles and this. um, But they were also these really relatable, you know, detective fictions that that also became movies. And so much of Smith's work is talked about in terms of Hollywood um, because she herself, you know, was a lifelong Los Angeles resident um, and that she had taken her name from a Hollywood starlet. And so there is there's this way that Alexis is, you know, a California artist and and really was thinking about Los Angeles and Hollywood as a special and unique place. Um, but like like you're saying, Matthew, so many of her her subjects and themes have a broader um impact and she's really thinking about this the unique experience of you know American life and I think that that's where someone like Jack Kerouac enters the picture you know she would talk about her her own influences you know she would kind of elide the art historical and instead place herself in a lineage of that she would call quirky American geniuses um, and this included Jack Kerouac this included uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect, or um, Isadora Duncan, you know, who can be seen as creator of modern dance. You know, all of these really unusual figures that had little to do with collage, um, but everything to do with a really particular American sensibility of reinvention and um, experimentation. And I think that that was really important to Alexis. And so there's also this idea of, and I think it's, there's this idea that first comes out in Same Old Paradise, the mural, which is this kind of, you know, almost manifest destiny of, you know, of heading out West, you know, into these orange groves um, and this sense of adventure and the possibilities of the open road. um, And, you know, for all of the, for all of the romance of the open road, it was also, it can be quite treacherous. And it, it is this snake that is seductive and, and offers knowledge and experience. But, you know, those things come at some cost. And there's, you know, this is another um, really common thing in Alexis's work is that there's this dark underside, you know, things are romantic, but they're, they're also quite perilous. She loved driving. Is when I started. She loved to drive. And in California, I mean, that's another thing. A lot of California artists really love the open road and love to drive. And she loved to drive fast. And <laughs> I was once in a car accident with her when she was driving. And she was very upset. It was pretty minor. But it was right in Santa Monica. And uh, she was quite upset. <laughs> I'm remembering the sort of unrolling of this this giant mural after 30 years, and that was a, a kind of really extraordinary experience. And actually walking along it, um, the seeing the, you know, walking along the orange grove and the scale of this thing was so immense that you almost felt like you were really in the landscape. And the whole thing that happens when you're driving down a road and you see the, the rows of orange trees or whatever they might be, 
you know, kind of flash and have this uh, sort of moray-like uh, thing happening. As you can see down the various alleys at the different angles, that's happening. There's six uh, vanishing points in this backdrop, in this mural. There's six different vanishing points that she uh, worked on and sort of developed in the design of it. But maybe you could both talk about briefly your encounter with uh, this sort of massive unrolling on the giant warehouse floor that we did about a year ago. Oh, wow. It was unbelievable. Alexis and Scott, her husband, were there, and her a former long time ago assistant who'd actually helped her paint the mural. Meg Belichick. Meg Belichick. Um, we were all there, and, and Nina, who'd helped fund the transportation because we had to pay to get it from... New York and all that, and then we had to find, or you had to, you found a f huge, huge space in library store storage territory. But unrolling it was very emotional. We, we had no idea what condition it was in. We didn't know if it was going to be rat-eaten or moth-eaten or what, because it, the crate, I don't think the crate had been opened since 87 when it was put into the crate. And um, anyway, we all got quite emotional and uh, shed some tears. And it was, Alexis is so happy to have found a home for this mural. Um, she had told me, I don't know how, how many years ago, but she'd said for a while that she would give it to us if we could find a place. So I would send out an email to the architects and planners at UCSD periodically besides walking around and looking at, you know, for spaces um, and saying, can't we find an eye-level 64-foot by 22-foot high space for this mural? And suddenly in this new auditorium that's not going to be finished until the end of the year, there's this wall <laughs> that's absolutely perfect for it. And everybody, the architects, everybody, the chancellor, everybody was thrilled. So um, that's really nice. And Alexis is, of course, really happy that it has a real home and that it's next to the snake path. So people can see, you know, kind of what the basic inspiration was um, and then, you know, walk on the path. Yeah, knowing that work, you know, from reproduction in books and in small slides, it was... I mean, I was really shocked at just how big it actually was. Like, it was so much larger than I could have imagined and so spectacular. And, you know, it just like that continues to blow me away. You know, even when her 1992 exhibition happened at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, the the mural was so large that they they couldn't show the real thing. They had to create a replica that was smaller that would fit in the museum. And... You know, I mean, even early on when I was, you know, trying to consider if there was a way I could put the mural in our show in La Jolla, it's it's just too large. So to have the opportunity to to find a permanent home for it is it's just incredible. Yeah, it really is amazing. And it's so wonderful that everybody's so excited about it. But it is it's, you know, again, uh, bringing in literature and, you know, being on this new auditorium, it's on the wall of the back of it, between, and, and in a corridor, 
but the other side of the corridor is glass so that you can you'll be able to see it from outside as well. It's a very tight space in a way because you can only get back maybe 10 feet from this 20 foot tall by 60 foot long uh, painting, but you'll be able to go outside and you'll actually be able to see it at night, at least when it's illuminated, be able to see it from hundreds of feet away uh, and from out in the courtyard that's adjacent. So we're all kind of looking forward with a little bit of trepidation uh, to what that's uh, actually going to produce, but it'll be a different context and it'll be very exciting. And Mary, you mentioned it had to be at eye level and that's because of the collages, right? Um, and the collages is a whole nother because, you know, finding a space like that, usually a space like that in architecture might be high up, but it has to be possible to walk right up to this to be able to understand it because there are still collage elements that are there um, with type and so on that you have to be able to read. So, and those collages are, there's eight of them and there are about five feet tall and three feet wide. So they're sort of human scale. So it gives this several different dimensions, which actually, um, I remember Anthony, Alexis talking about uh, this sort of Alice in Wonderland kind of shift uh, that collage enables. And the way she was able to just take the collage as it works for her on a drawing scale, you know, and just sort of put it into the landscape is still sort of amazing to me, you know, that you're on this gigantic snake and the book is gigantic, but the book is tiny compared to the snake, you know, and you go to this garden and it's human scale, but it's incredibly miniaturized and sort of tightened in uh, by the snake. And collage, just in the way that it is, you know, you can put a sort of an image of, there's an image on a matchbook or whatever, and you can put that next to something that's much larger. And there are these shifts of scale that happen at the collage scale, which lend themselves perfectly to the landscape scale. I always think of the book as being, is you're entering Wonderland, or is it a, is it a monument, or is it a, a you know, Wonderland of Alice in Wonderland, you know, the scale all, you don't know whether it's bigger or smaller, and it's, I think that's part of it, obviously, and how the, and that relates to collage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the experience of the viewer and the way that a work is perceived is really important in, and I think all of her collages, you know, even in the the sort of small book-like pieces where she's thinking about, you know, the act of reading and how reading becomes this sort of performative action that, you know, you're reading the words on, on her collages, but you're also reading their relationships to the images or the objects. And in the public works, you're right, it is this like Wonderland-esque thing where the body just completely shifts in its scale. Um, and you can think of how this functions in so many of her public projects, whether the convention center in LA or the, the auditorium in Ohio, where, um, you know, the the collage of whatever it might be is sort of integrated into, into the architecture, kind of how it's integrated into the landscape at UCSD. And, you know, creates this this kind of impossible experience where you'll never see it in its totality, but you can move through it and and kind of experience the work over time. Mary, let's talk about uh, Sixth College and, and the whole new living and learning neighborhood and the scale of that. And then when is this going to happen? Well, the scale of this whole new neighborhood, I mean, it's, I think, six or eight buildings plus this auditorium, the buildings, 
think three of them are dorms um, closest to the ocean or on the far west side. And then the others are offices and there's a craft center, which disappeared a few years ago on campus that everybody loved. And so now they're bringing it back, which, uh, again, everybody's excited about that. And uh, so it all kind of ties in with theater and movies. I mean, the, the auditorium, you know, it's not a, a, a marquee, but it's um, a highly visible image. And um, uh, we hope that that building is going to be done by the end of this year or early next year. That would be 2021. 20, um, and it'll obviously be the last thing that goes in, but we've worked, or you've worked mostly with all the uh, architects and engineers to figure out a really good placement and with proper lighting and everything. So um, we're confident that um, that is going to be pretty spectacular. <laughs> uh, this new living and learning neighborhood, the other half of it, the eastern half, will uh, be the new headquarters of all the humanities on campus. Uh, literature, philosophy, history, will uh, the departments will be housed there, as well as the deans of uh, arts and humanities and the dean of social science. And there are several social science uh, department departments, economics, and others that are going to be headquartered there. So it's going to be a really significant part of the campus, a really key part. And it's also kind of on axis with the library and with the snake. Uh, it's basically directly west, about 300 yards from where the snake is. Um, so all of that is pretty terrific. Um, Anthony, I just wanted to ask you about the show that's coming up, and uh, maybe you could talk about that at the museum. Yeah, the well, the museum is, of course, in the middle of its own construction and renovation process in La Jolla. And so the exhibition of Alexis's work will be in that new building once it's completed, which we, we hope will be in 2022. Um, so that's when the exhibition is planned, and, and it will be the first, you know, dedicated survey of Alexis's work since 1991, um, when the Whitney Museum in New York organized um, a survey of her work. So it will present almost five decades of her career um, from her early, you know, typeset collages in the 1970s to, you know, room-sized installations. And we're very fortunate that the Stewart Collection is so close by with two of the most, like, important examples of her public practice. Um, so that, that'll be an incredible asset to the exhibition as well. And also, I just wanted to like piggyback on the humanities aspect of the new campus, how fitting that is, because Alexis, you know, always talks about how she, I mean, literature is so important to her work precisely because she was an avid reader. And, you know, she started college, she would say as a humanities major, she, you know, was studying French and thought she would be a French teacher. And so she often described that experience as being one of the, you know, sort of key influences on her artistic interests and how, you know, this interest in literature never, never waned. Anthony, how does the whole idea of, of paradise and the snake uh, fit in with her larger work, with uh, her, the whole expanse of Alexis' work? Alexis described 
all of her work as, as or almost all of her work being about the loss of innocence. And especially in the late 80s and early 90s, um, she became interested in Jack Kerouac. She produced an extensive body of work using On the Road. She actually had two exhibitions called On the Road and El Dorado On the Road 2. And um, Same Old Paradise, you know, happened the year before that first exhibition. And uh, Snake Path happened the year after the second one. So they're these perfect bookends to um, a really important series for her. You know, she would talk about these, these both of these exhibitions as being her first grown-up practice um where she felt like she was really um i think had mastered her use of quoting literature and combining them with with different images and objects and all of this work was about you know the open road and and connected to her love of driving and this kind of sense of adventure that um that is reflected in Kerouac's book you know in this sort of search for paradise and again, this, this sort of dark underside of, of an innocence lost. Yes, because the book is definitely about an innocence lost. <laughs> uh, the book is, uh, is almost shockingly about that. So I'll just read these uh, quotations, and Mary or Anthony, maybe you might want to respond to them. Uh, they go like this, and I think they were, they were selected out because they encapsulate this, these ideas you were just talking about, um, Anthony. The first one is, the road was straight as an arrow. The moths smashed our windshield. My eyes ached in nightmare day. I suddenly saw the whole country as an oyster for us to open. And the pearl was there, the pearl was there. A fast car, a coast to reach, a woman at the end of the road. I looked greedily out the window. Somewhere along the line, there'd be girls, visions, everything. Somewhere along the line, the pearl would be handed to me. Yeah. She loved that quote, and she remembers it. She can still recite it. The thing that I love about it is that, um, you know, that that uh, specific order of lines, you know, they're taken from every different part of the book and brought together. So, you know, Smith has... She's made her own poem using Kerouac's words. And, and she does that so often with her use of literature. They're quotes, but not quite. You know, she's not directly citing anyone. She's kind of twisting their words for her own, her own interests. Yeah. I can't let this go without just uh, pointing out or mentioning, I guess mentioning is different, that she was at UC Irvine with Bob Irwin, who was, Bob Irwin was one of her teachers, and other, uh, who else was there, Matthew, do you remember? I know that Bob was really important to her. Well, I think Ed Ruscha was a kind of a fellow student, almost, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, Ed Ruscha went to CalArt, or to Chenard. Um, okay. Um, but Bob Irwin uh, always claimed that Ed Ruscha was his student, and I never quite... Got that, Bob but it was probably have, true. Bob may have taught at Chouinard also. When Alexis went to UC Irvine, um, her first the first class she took in the art department was with John Copland's, an, an introductory art history class. And she talks about that being a really important experience. But the the she she took classes with Bob Irwin and Via Selmans and Craig Kaufman. And what's interesting is that, you know, formally her work has so little to do with any of those artists. Um, 
And she would often talk about how Irvine was unique because it didn't it didn't teach her how to be an artist, but it it taught her that being an artist was possible. And so those all of those, you know, teachers and artists were important to her because you know, they introduced her to the art world uh, and they sort of gave her permission to to be there. That's great. Yeah. Describes it perfectly. <laughs> yeah, because also, I mean, because UC Irvine at the time was a brand new school um, and it was it was known for being very experimental. And Alexis went there because she thought, you know, Irvine was far enough away from home that she could say she went away to college Um even though she hadn't, she hadn't left California that she hadn't left California at all. <laughs> I don't think she's ever left California or lived anywhere else. Not for an extensive period of time. You know, she's, she's had residencies and taught at other schools, but including UCSD. She you taught know, at 70s. UCSD. Yeah. Yeah. There's at least one interview where she talks about, um, you know, she would go to San Diego whenever she was having a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> she, Oh dear, well, I'm not going to go into that, but she, <laughs> yeah, she talks about moving back here every once in a while in a, uh, in a whatever, a fantasy. <laughs> this really took a long time and it really was a huge effort, the snake. It was multi-year, it was different from anything we'd done before and different in that way from many of the projects we've done since. It was so hands-on. Um, and the people who worked on it were so integral to it. You know, this company, Claser Tile, uh, got completely involved in it. They printed T-shirts that said Team Snake, and, uh, and they were totally engaged. And they were thrilled that the snake eventually got into, you know, Tile and Masonry magazine or something like that as, a, as an achievement just on a technical level of tile installation. And, uh, and also the people... Um, uh, Rich Sedevi and uh, and uh, someone who painted the what's her name who painted the uh, uh, the actual uh, design for the backdrop. There's a beautiful gouache painting that we have now at the Stewart Collection as part of this acquisition of the mural that is a gouache. And uh, Alexis produced that uh, from her studio, and uh, and it was uh, painted at her studio, and then it was the UC. L.A. Theater Department and Rich Sedevi, who was a, an artist, artisan there, a scene painter, uh, who painted a lot of the backdrop, of, painted a lot of the mural based on Alexis' very specific directions. Um, the other thing I'd want to mention about the, the making of it uh, was that Alexis was just obsessed with details. And, uh, and a lot of people that worked with her were, you know, it was just like a little too much. Uh, how much she would focus on the details. Uh, but she always said, and it's, I think it's really true, that the more you focus on those, the more in a way they disappear, the more it looks completely natural. And that was something she said over and over again, um, that if we get this right, if we get a, a perfect sort of immaculate uh, design solutions, uh, then all that stuff disappears and it just flows. And it does. She was right. <laughs> Mary and Anthony, thank you so much for doing this. And we can all look forward to this extraordinary event happening in about uh, six months or less. Um, and we really look forward as well, uh, two years from now, uh, to the opening at, uh, at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego.
Uh, welcome to the live part of our little presentation, and, uh, and thank you for being here. We have uh, Mary and uh, Anthony, and some questions have come through from all of you watching. Here's the first one, and this is, probably goes to Mary. Uh, will it be possible to have an Alexis Smith event to celebrate the coming of the mural to Sixth College? Well, we certainly hope so. Um, we, uh, <laughs> what can I say? This COVID thing has thrown everybody off. But by the early next year, we hope we can have a big celebration uh, and a grand one and open to the public and, you know, make a thing of it. Yes, and we'll do everything that's necessary to make that happen. And uh, if the campus isn't wide open, for all comers, we'll do it uh, virtually and follow up with the live event at some point or another. Um, the campus has been working uh, diligently and professionally and uh, in a great way to sort of deal with the current crisis. And, uh, and uh, we're doing our best to do the same. Uh, here's a, another question sort of about the installation itself. Uh, the mural will have a huge impact from a distance. What impact do you anticipate on viewers who are closer to it? And since none of us have seen it, uh, maybe that's a question for both Anthony and Mary. I've imagined what it's going to be like, but I'm curious what you both think. Well, it'll be kind I mean, it could be scary. <laughs> <laughs> but as you said, it is like going through that landscape yourself when you're right up there. And you can focus on the collages or... You know, you can be freaked out by the snake's head, but I think people are people are so positive about it all. I know not mm -hmm. everybody loves snakes, but this snake is going to be kind of enchanting. <laughs> I was just going to echo the same thing that you know you'll be able to really engage with the collages at a close distance, which um, you know for the monumental scale of the piece, you know it it retains her attention to detail and you know the the really. You know, specificity of each of each piece you know the the text is only legible from very close and there are small objects embedded in the collages so it's definitely a piece that you know that benefits from both experiences yeah and the far away experience will be hundreds and hundreds of feet away it'll be a sort of a, a spot in the distance and uh it, that's sort of the best of both worlds in in some ways and a very different experience from different places uh, here's a question Sorry, go As ahead, you come Mary. up to it, I guess maybe you'll start to recognize what it is. But you start out with just this huge California view, you mm -hmm. know, from, from a far distance. And I think, you know, it will be a, a curious sight from far away. And then as you get up, it'll turn into this incredible mural, you know, big image. Anthony, a question about Alexis' work. Uh, when did she start doing public commissions? And where are some other permanent commissions? Yeah, she started, um, she started doing public commissions in the early 1980s. I believe the first one is called The Grand in Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1982. Um, unfortunately, I, do, I don't think that that piece exists anymore. I know that the... It doesn't. Yeah. Um, the, the theater, it was in a theater lobby, which has, you know, since been renovated. Um, but that was one of her first, you know, very large scale public commissions. Um, and then she continued doing them throughout the 1980s and into the early 1990s. And, and they are an important part of her practice. 
um, with Snake Path, I think being one of the first, you know, I mean, it was a huge accomplishment for the Stewart collection and it is a huge accomplishment for Alexis because it's, it's so large. Um, but in the interim, she did a number of other projects, um, including a series of mini monuments around MacArthur Park, which were, you know, sort of smaller sculptures that were, you know, placed around the park. Um, and I think two of her other um, largest projects like Snake Path would be the convention center in LA, where she did um, this terrazzo floor um, of, of the lobbies and sim- a similar project similar only in that it's it's use of terrazzo um, at the Ohio State University um, sports arena. Um, And both of those projects, similarly to Snake Path, you know, are are kind of integrated into, you know, an existing site, you know, in those cases, architecture instead of the landscape, um, but are um, this this very kind of like physical visual experience. Uh, Here's a kind of practical question. There's a couple of them. Uh, this one is, will the mural be behind a barrier? Will preservation be a problem? And that's something that sort of naturally comes up. Um, I'll go ahead and answer that, Mary, and then yeah, good. go to you. Makes sense. Uh, the the mural is in a, in a very shallow recess, which doesn't really protect it, uh, but it is recessed, so it's marked that way. In uh, some of the video that UCTV so put together so well for us, um, you can see a kind of magenta line and there is a low barrier that will be there that will indicate, obviously, that you're not supposed to go across. And then we also have various uh, gadgets uh, that will uh, stop people from touching it. If you reach out towards it uh, and get too close, say within six in- inches, there will be something, a, a, a beep or a voice or something that tells you to please uh, not touch uh, nothing that uh, disrupts the operation of the building or the or the auditorium next door, uh, but uh, we do have all of that stuff and cameras and so on. So while it's not a museum uh, and protected the way uh, museums are, it is a it's it's also a very durable surface. And we were stunned when we unrolled it how not only immaculate it was, but how durable it is. Uh, and so we have all those things uh, uh, sort of taken into consideration, but obviously uh, this is a public space and, and it's uh, open to students and so on. Uh, but uh, the works in the Stewart Collection have been pretty well um, uh, cared for uh, by the community for many, many years. And respected. We've not had, um, knock on wood, a vandalism problem. But also um, what we, we decided with the UCSD architects and planners and people to use the original, you know, to not, to, to use the can, the actual canvas, but in case it gets seriously damaged or something or it fades terribly or, or something, which we don't think it will. Um, but uh, we have got, we have had made, unbelievable photographs by Philip Schultz Ritterman so that it could be reproduced on canvas um, if necessary. So uh, we're not going to lose it. (laughs) And uh, we're, we're happy about that. Yes. That's what we were doing in the unrolling that you saw a video of. Uh, Here are a couple questions uh, that I'm sort of putting together. Uh, One has to do with uh, uh, have we ever done at the Stewart Collection, or are we planning anything along the lines of a pathway? And uh, 
And also, uh, just a general question, what's in store for the Stewart Collection? And I think we got two answers for that, Mary. Um, uh, what's in store at Sixth College and this new campus? Uh, and, uh, and also, what about Pathways? Well, the Pathway we've been working on for a number of years is going to go, it's by Ann Hamilton, um, and it's going to go from the new trolley stop on campus into the campus. And the pathway is 26 feet wide. Um, Anne has chosen quotations from literature, from the history of the campus, from the special collections at the library, and from, um, you know, uh, faculty and or former faculty and all kinds of people that will be embedded in this pathway. And uh, we're still testing. It's going to probably be basalt um, and, and sandblasted out. And uh, so, and it's geared to the rhythm of walking, which I think is really kind of amazing. And um, we're, we're very excited about it. We're doing another test, as I guess I just said, but uh, we hope that it's gonna be installed by the end of 21 when the trolley opens. And then we hope, we have high hopes that it can get extended, you know, even further into the campus, but that's uncertain, partly because of COVID and construction slowdowns, et cetera. But um, so there's that. And then we're working on a proposal um, that we're going to take to the chancellor later this month um, by an artist who's a, I don't know how much I should talk about that one. <laughs> right, because we don't have the official sanction for it, right? right? It's pretty right. exciting. Uh, and we've involved uh, many members of the community and uh, the Craft Center has been a kind of a key participant in it. And so I guess we should keep it a secret uh, for a little while. Uh, but we do have a couple more of these presentations coming up, I want to mention. Uh, one for Terry Allen, one for Ian Hamilton Finley. And, uh, and uh, we we'll, might even know more at that time. Uh, so uh, we'll leave it at that. I have a general question that came through that has to do with Alexis' work and how it's perceived today. And maybe I'll direct that toward uh, Anthony. Uh, does it uh, relate to things that are going on in Los Angeles today uh, or in the wider art world? Uh, and do you see connections you know, from this work that began in the 19... 70s and has extended through to today and much more contemporary and younger artists working today. Alexis's work has always, you know, formally, she's always looked quite singular amidst her peers and amidst, you know, um, the contemporary art scene as it's evolved and changed, you know, especially through her commitment to collage as a medium. And yet, you know, her subjects and her themes persist and remain kind of, you know, not I, I wouldn't say timeless, but they, they remain relevant. You know, they remain questions that we're continuing to ask ourselves. And, you know, so much of Alexis's work is about, you know, looking to the past to understand our present. And, you, you know, at the time that might have been in, you know, in the 80s, looking back to the 40s or in the 90s, looking back to Jack Kerouac. Um, and even though I think those cultural reference points are are shifting, you know, I you know, for example, like the, the quotes at, or the movies or the books that she's citing may not 
be as sort of readily accessible to a viewer today like they might have been, or maybe they still are. Um, And I think that's exactly kind of um, what's exciting about her work is that it's, there's all, she's always trying to understand the the bigger ideas, the bigger themes that are embedded in our books and our movies and our, and our culture um, and, and trying to tease out, you know, what's, what's really kind of hidden in there. And so it, it's sort of always, you know, an exciting challenge. And certainly mm-hmm. the loss of innocence is an <laughs> eternal theme. You know, I, it's always relevant. It's what we all have to deal with and go through and become grownups, you know, hopefully. And the idea that's... today of a paradise lost is certainly um, uh, very contemporary and the paradise perhaps regained and lost again. Yeah, there's a question about, a kind of an interesting question that's about, uh, are there other works in the Stewart collection that come out of an artwork? Uh, in other words, as opposed to simply proposal documents, you know, uh, an actual artwork that is the, the sort of source material or the, uh, or the uh, you know, the inspiration for a larger installation. That would be for Mary. Uh, and I, this one thing pops into my head, but it's mostly on the, on the order of models. Um, uh, can you think of anything, Mary? Well, I'm just thinking about the Bruce Nauman Vices and Virtues. Mm-hmm. Which is a little, it's kind of different, but it sparked, you know, when he was chosen to represent the U.S. in the Venice Biennale, we, we allowed them to make a smaller replica which is different than what what you're talking about. But he also did different vices and virtues in stone. Yes. Graved them in stone. And so he he used it for other works. Um, But the the one that they did uh, made for Venice around the American pavilion, um, uh, the small, that version was not for sale. It could not, it was, we allowed it to go to Switzerland or some other exhibition mm-hmm. where they sort of rearranged everything. But, but then it had to be destroyed because, you know, uh, our, our piece is unique. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, we always try to have unique things for the Stewart collection. And we have some models that are pretty much works of art. Uh, I think of the, the Sun God. Uh, and this beautiful model, uh, one to five scale model that Nikki Sanfad made and painted uh, in gouache and uh, just in these beautiful colors. And, and that uh, remains for sure. Hawkinson's model too. Yes, we do. <laughs> what Tim used were reproductions, miniatures of the actual rocks we found. Yes, at, at a half inch to a foot. Uh, and that he was able to play with and form the bear. And he could have never sort of, we could have never formed that bear without that process of Tim working with his hands directly on it. Yeah, because the yeah. stones are too heavy. I mean, they the certainly are. 30,000 pounds, 35,000. The whole thing weighs 360,000 pounds. Is that right, Matthew? Anyway, yes. like that. <laughs> Anthony, were you going to say something or? Uh... I was. I thought um, I could be misremembering, but I thought that Dohosa had had also previously made work about kind of the home on a on a tornado, um, and that certainly nothing was realized like the piece at the Stewart Collection, but that it was 
a formal idea that he had kind of addressed before. But maybe that was a maquette, and I'm just misunderstood. No, I, I, I mean, he's dealt with the idea of home for a long time as one of his main concerns, and that seemed appropriate for a campus. But um, he gave us two proposals, and uh, the one was the garden on the back of a truck that mm-hmm. appeared as if a Korean garden, as if it had been driven all the way from Korea, which of course is impossible. And the other one was the house. And we took deep breaths and said, we've got to do the house. <laughs> Let's just go over the dates. Uh, so early uh, 2021 for the installation, the completion of Sixth College of that whole complex. There may be students actually arriving sooner than that. Uh, in the fall, but then that would be the the time for the installation of the mural. And Anthony, the Alexis Smith uh, retrospective, uh, when is that planned? It is scheduled for fall 2022. Um, You know, as ever, our schedules remained nimble (laughs) as we're all kind of, you know, being affected by by our current closures, but that is the plan. And I I remain hopeful Um, fall 2022. Well, we really look forward to that, and uh, we sure look forward to the mural. Uh, thank you both uh, for joining us. And, uh, and then uh, we have also uh, uh, July 9th coming up, a conversation about Ian Hamilton Finley. And uh, we have another, I'm not sure of the date, uh, for Terry Allen. So we look forward to that. That'll be in the next weeks. Uh, I want to thank everyone who's here for joining us. I thank you for your questions. And I want to really thank UCTV and John Muneer uh, for uh, engineering and putting, and your colleagues, John, for putting together. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.